Welcome to Subscribing to Wellness, the show where Rachel Newman and myself, Daniel Fairman, sit down with leading founders, executives, and investors committed to building a healthier future for consumers. Today on Subscribing to Wellness, we are joined by Mark Levitt, co-founder and managing partner of Enlightened Hospitality Investments. Mark serves on the boards of Joe Coffee, Solid Straw, Gold Belly, Dig, and Bonza. He also sits on the board of Union Square Hospitality Group. In 2020, Mark was included in Nations Restaurants' News Top 50 Technology Power List, which features the 50 most influential leaders of technology and innovation in the restaurant industry. Mark, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. We're really happy to have you. For our listeners that aren't familiar, would love to kind of give them some background on who you are and what you do. So could you tell us a little bit about you and Enlightened Hospitality Group? Sure. So we set up EHI, as we call Enlightened Hospitality Investments, about five and a half years ago. I just had my six-year work anniversary at Union Square Hospitality, so I, I can I can kind of work the timing back. But but the background was Danny Meyer and I were college roommates and have been really close friends for a long time. And you know we chose very different career paths after graduation, where he did. He, he went the food route and, and I spent 35 plus years in investment banking, mainly running tech media telecom groups. And about six years ago, Danny and I were having dinner and he told me he was thinking about starting a private equity business because through a family office that his grandfather had set up, Danny had made seven or eight investments around the hospitality space that, that all had worked really well. And I asked Danny the question, when you make these investments, who's actually doing the analysis to figure out if they're overpriced or underpriced or how to structure the deals? And he looked at me like I had two heads and said, oh, I'm just backing management teams who share a vision and who share a culture and put their employees first and prioritize this way. And I listened to all this and I said, you know, once again, I think our skill sets are pretty complementary and we could probably be dangerous together. So that was that was really that was the precursor for coming over and joining. I brought over a guy named Pete Mavravides, who is who had worked with me since being assigned randomly to me in 2004. He'd gone to University of Chicago, was randomly assigned as an analyst to my investment banking group at Jefferies, and has worked with me ever since. So Pete came over as our third partner, and we spent really the first year trying to figure out how this fit with USHG and where the sweet spot was and what we were what we were trying to do. So at that time, Union Square Hospitality Group was 15 full-service restaurants, a, a consulting business called HQ, which stands for Hospitality Quotient, and a catering business called Union Square Events. And we set the fund up, and what we decided, what we really decided was that, that our sweet spot was going to be making 10 to $20 million investments. And we decided that where we were going to get the most leverage was by taking minority stakes in companies. Because what we found was by the time someone had hired a bank and was selling control of their company, they all say they want a strategic partner, but really what they want at that point is the highest price. So we looked and said, this is not where we're we're going to get leverage. And we decided that taking a bunch of services that Union Square Hospitality Group used to provide in the old days for a fee, such as helping companies with site selection, branding, marketing, food procurement, any number of operational things, we would include as part of our investment services. And in exchange, we thought we could drive better pricing for our limited partners and ourselves by the strategic value we brought. 
So that was that was the background of setting up enlightened hospitality investments. Union Square Hospitality Group is a minority owner in the general partnership. So they've got an ongoing economic interest, which incentivizes the senior leaders at USHG to invest with us. And most of them are also individual investors in the fund with us, as are most of the senior leaders at Shake Shack as well. That makes total sense. So kind of going off of what you said about how you guys structure investments in your portfolio, how do you see yourselves as partners in the portfolio companies that you've invested in? And how do you offer support and analysis to these companies as you make investments? So it'll really vary company to company. and It'll be based on what the expectations were going in and where we can be strategic and where we can be helpful. You know, in, in, in the old days, our limited partners would ask, what do, you, what do you spend the most time disagreeing about? And the answer was always the same. The answer was always, where does the, the fund was focused as a hospitality-oriented fund. And it was really, where does hospitality start and where does hospitality end? And on one end was Danny, who said, hospitality touches every business. And people that practice enlightened hospitality, which is a concept that comes from his book, Setting the Table, which says by prioritizing your employees first, you can drive better returns. By practicing enlightened hospitality, you, you, you can do better. So, so Danny viewed kind of our target universe as everything. I was on the other side of the spectrum that said, we have such a power alley amongst restaurants and restaurant tech and food tech. And we're seeing 100 deals for everyone we're doing, all without a bank in the middle. So it's all very proprietary deal flow. Why would we ever deviate from that? And Pete was kind of in the middle. And that's generally where we ended up, is is, is, is some merger of what Danny thought and what I thought. And over time, what we realized was that in a lot of ways, the companies we were looking at investing in would give us the answer as to how strategic we could or couldn't be. Because... For them to value our strategic assistance, we are never the high price bidder. We're generally 15 to 25% less than other kind of private equity groups doing similar things. And the trade-off is we think we bring something more to the table than just money. And what we found was that people that were willing to give us the pricing we wanted tended to be people that really value the strategic things that we can provide. So, so what I've said to our limited partners is that. The focus now is where can we be strategic and what, what, is it, what does it entail to be strategic? Now, one of the challenges and opportunities with that is that for us to be strategic, it's generally using the relationships of Danny, of Pete, and of me. So it requires all of us to kind of be at least a little bit up to speed on everything going on with all the portfolio companies because we can't say this is your deal or this is my deal. So I've looked and said, this is really the scarce resource. This is this is what drives value for us. And we need to really pick our spots because it's a finite resource. Source. We don't have unlimited capacity to do this with 100 different companies. So Fund One had has 14 investments. We've sold two. We've made 14. We've sold two. There'll probably be one more in that. And we are about to close Fund Two within the next couple of weeks. That'll be about 50% larger than Fund One. So, so the challenge is finding opportunities. You know, one of the things we've seen is we like all the companies we invested in. You know, when COVID hit, we did a hard look saying, is there anything if we could get ourselves out of now we would do? There was a couple of issues, companies that had more issues than others, because generally 
they had big exposure to the New York City marketplace and they were you know, serving lunch, for example, in New York City and no one was in the office towers. So, so aside from that, we liked all the companies we invested in and said, we really want to make sure they have adequate capital to get to the other side because we still believe in the thesis that we took on to make the investment. And we also think on the other side, it's going to be a better operating environment for a lot of these brands. Real estate prices are going to be less. There's going to be less competition of other fast casual brands and other CPG brands. So we think it's a pretty bright outlook right now going forward. That makes total sense. Well, congratulations on almost closing funds, fun too. That's always a, a fun time. I'm sure you've been very busy with that. Is fun two looking in the same space as fund one in terms of the types of investments, or are you guys taking kind of a different thesis with fund two? No, ex- exactly same thesis. The portfolio mix we think will look very similar to fund one. Got it. Makes sense. I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into fund one and kind of, so where in Lane Hospitality Group sits and the investments that you guys have made thus far is a very varied range in terms of like hard consumer companies in actual like consumer products, as well as companies like Resi or things like that in the hospitality space. How do you guys kind of differentiate that? And what's your main thesis in investing? So the main thesis in investing is really who do we think practices in life and hospitality, and that can take on a couple. You know, it can, it, sometimes it's called conscious capitalism. It's got a bunch of different names, but but we jokingly say we want to tr- we want to show that nice people can finish first, and and we think that by treating your employees, your suppliers, your community well, that that will ultimately drive outsized returns and have a more defensible moat than, than people that don't do that. So that's the investment thesis. More, more particularly with things around food or fast casual food brands, we say we want to invest in food that's craveable and, and, and brands that have a tribe. So you want, you want a large you know, passionate group of followers, something I would say Joe Coffee has in a big way, Salt and Straw Ice Cream has in a big way, Dig certainly has, has a passionate tribe of people that love the food. So, so that's that's kind of what we're looking for from an investment side. On the t- half our fund is technology. And you know, in, in the old in the early days in the hospitality space, they didn't have enough money to spend on technology. So early days were, you know. The owner of the restaurant had his notepad and have its reservations on that, and and it had purchasing on that and its inventory systems. And it was really because there wasn't enough money to invest in technology and technology infrastructure. As the business has become increasingly competitive, they have no choice but to spend money on technology and technology infrastructure. One of the things that went on during COVID was that the rate of technology adoption accelerated probably two to four years faster than we thought it was going to. You know, the, the, the need for online order, ordering, for better labor management, better inventory management, better customer loyalty programs, customer retention programs became, became you know, dramatically compounded during, during the pandemic and, and the tech investments increased pretty significantly in value. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess reflecting on as you guys are closing fund two and the future of Inline Hospitality Group and reflecting on Fund One, are there areas that you are very excited about or looking to dig deeper into as the future grows for Fund Two? Yeah, well, we've, we've done 
a couple things in the plant-based space, which we think is going to continue to get attention and be attractive. And we're investors in Bonza, which is a chickpea pasta company that's, that's growing rapidly. It's the fastest selling pasta brand in Whole Foods, not just better for you pasta, but all pastas. And we invested in Notco, which is a really interesting company. They call it, you know, we, we view it as, we view it sometimes as a plant-based food company, but they call it, they view themselves as a food technology company. And, that, you know, what, what they did was they built an algorithm that figures out how to take the taste of a food you're trying to replicate and what mix of plants and vegetables and probiotics gets you to that same taste. Because right now, if you use impossible or beyond, it tastes what it tastes like. And, you know, the challenge the chef has is how do you mask that flavor to put the flavor they want in it? With, with Notco, you can go and say, this is the flavor I'm trying to recreate. And their computer algorithm can help figure out how to recreate that taste in a very effective fashion. Do you think like the future of a lot of your investments might be in this plant-based space beyond technology or in the actual consumer food space? You know, when we set up Fund One, we thought, we thought that better for you, healthy, plant-based was going to be a significant part of the fund. And I think Two of our first three investor investments were in coffee and ice cream. So, so, so we 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 think it's a balance of all those things. You know, it's, no no one's going to eat. We look and say um, we want to find brands that people you know that, that get in the rotation. Yeah, when 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 Shake Shack was going to the West Coast, I know that that Randy Garudi and Danny got a lot of questions about you know can you compete within an Outburger. And the answer was, we're not really trying to compete with In-N-Out Burger. We want to be in the rotation and then people will eat burgers a couple times a week. And we hope, you know, a couple times a month, we're, we're their choice. And we view it the same way. Well, coffee we do is more of a regular thing, but, but we view ice cream kind of along the same lines. Hey, Salt and Straw has a plant-based flavor. They have so many plant-based flavors. So, you know, they it's do. kind of... <laughs> they do. They do. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. Same, same, just like different. Um, yes. as, you, as you look in the future of hospitality, just generally speaking, and you mentioned that you guys are obviously invested in a number of technology-based companies in the hospitality space, where do you see the future of hospitality going? I guess like we can take into consideration COVID, but not just COVID, just in general, like where do you see the future of the food space, but hospitality in general? So we spent a lot of time early in the pandemic saying, saying what's the future of hospitality and how is it going to be consumed? And people care about hospitality anymore when they're, when they're bunkered down in their house. And the conclusion we came to is that the desire for hospitality didn't go away, probably is as strong as it's ever been, but the way people consume hospitality has changed. So one of the things we focused on was that one of the ways people wanted, one of the ways people viewed hospitality was through personal safety. So we made an investment in Clear, who was setting up a business called Health Pass that we could use to screen the health of our employees coming in and out of the restaurants. And we had a vision that this would be a broader way to screen people coming in and out of the front of the restaurants. At the same time, the professional sports leagues were looking with, with, with very much the same rationale saying, how do we make sure someone bringing towels into a locker room doesn't come in and infect our team? But broadly speaking, how do we have sections of the stadium that are now, you know, that for that people that have been vaccinated? So that was the thesis coming in and that, that went public soon after we invested. And, and that is looking like a really attractive investment for us. And that was based around the concept of hospitality and safety. 
The other kind of you know, byproduct of hospitality we saw during the pandemic affected Gold Belly, which is one of our larger investments. And when we invested in Gold Belly, we really had two theses about it. We said, this is a way for restaurants to increase revenues outside the four walls of the restaurants, which all restaurants need to do. And we also looked and said, at the time we invested, the average customer was making purchases one and a half times a year, which said to us, it's mainly a gifting item done around the holiday. And what happened with Gold Belly is as people couldn't travel and couldn't travel, couldn't be with, with, with loved ones around the country or have memories of meals they shared at different places. Gold Belly became the way to get shipped food into your house that brought back memories of being in New Orleans and having, yeah, have, having, having muffalettas from Central Grocery. And you know what happened was customers on Gold Belly started moving towards using these as events or for dinners and purchasing large quantities that way. And it really shifted purchasing habits to the extent that Gold Belly, I now hear Gold Belly as a verb where someone said, oh, we Gold Belly ribs last night. We Gold Belly did this, you know, because we're having a big dinner party. So I think that really touched a different theme around hospitality during the pandemic, which, which evoked memories and nostalgia and a desire for food that you couldn't, you know, order on Seamless. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Gold Belly, that Gold Belly has, I think we talk about it a lot in general of being able, and you mentioned it, being able to get foods that you, that are like so far away or are nostalgic in some way or famous in another way and being able to have that at the drop of a hat or at your fingertips in like almost like an Uber Eats type of way is is incredible. And I think we'll just see it skyrocket in the same way, maybe in an international fashion. Who, who knows? I honestly don't I, even know. We, 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 I, th- I think there's ab- absolutely an opportunity to build an international marketplace like they've done here in the States. One of the things we thought was an opportunity was to do a more thorough job of storytelling around the chefs, around the, the type of cuisine they were doing. And Gold Belly has done a really good job um, becoming better storytellers about what, what you're buying by having cooking classes you can take, by doing a butter, bunch of things to make it more of an interactive experience than it once was. And, yeah, and, and we, get, we, we know it's resonating because a lot of the companies that got big boosts during COVID, they've kind of lost that now. Gold Belly is continuing to add revenues, add subscribers, add customers, everything else. I think there's an element of food that people crave the storytelling aspect. We've seen the success with Chef's Table, like Airbnb experiences popping up, Amex offering things through Resi. You know, people like to have that deeper connection to the food that they eat. And I think that there's so many avenues in which that is now being seen through technology platforms. Right. Which is cool. <laughs> which is really exciting. Very Based- much that. <laughs> Yeah. Based on, so based on the current investments in, in fund one, is there one that really sticks out to you that is either exciting or has done very well, or that the investment process was really fun for you? Yeah, they're they're all fun in different ways. What makes them the most interesting to me are the characters, the, the management teams that we're backing, because they all got to that point of creating these companies through various experiences they had. And, and, and that to me is the most interesting part of it all. Yeah. You know, we, with, with it, within our fund, half our investments have female CEOs or founders. And then we have another 70, 70, about 70% of our fund 
um, is classified as, as run by a diverse pool of leaders. So I think that makes it really fun for us. We have, we have a community of company conference that we put on one or two times a year. This is something that Danny moderates for us. And we bring all our portfolio CEOs. We have a handful of large limited partners that are active in the food space, either as licensing partners or owner of restaurant brands around the world or technology partners. And they show up and talk. We get the senior leaders from Union Square, from Shake Shack as well to come and, come and talk and, and share ideas. And that's, that's been a really important thing for us as, as we're kind of building out our portfolio. And we think it's one of the real competitive advantages we have because people love participating in this community of company conference because of the network of, of, of leaders that, that they interact with. Makes total sense. I'd love to shift a little bit. We have our favorite section of the podcast, which we call rapid fire. I'm going to throw some random questions at you. Luckily, I know a little bit of fun facts about you and just throw whatever you have. Fire so <laughs> your favorite wine region or type of wine? My favorite are Burgundies. What I can what what I can more afford are Italian wines, and I and I love wines from Umbria and and Tuscany in particular. Favorite travel destination? After coming back from a family trip to Rwanda and the Serengeti, I said to my wife, "If from now on we only travel to Africa and Italy, I'd be really happy." Love that. Love that. Um, I was just in Morocco, and it was the most remarkable place I've ever been. Guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasure is playing the drums in my rock and roll band. Ooh. Favorite Red Sox player of all time. Harley Strumsky. And favorite consumer product that you are excited about right now. Probably Notco because I think the applications are huge for what they can do. Fair enough. So a question we like to ask all of our guests is how they subscribe to wellness and what that means to them. So daily habits that you do or or not do that really help you be a better version of yourself. So I've I've had this this trainer who was an ex professional fighter, ex New York City cop, who now has a truck called the Wrecking Room, and he set this up during the pandemic when the gyms were closed, and he parks it on the street, and you go out and work in work out in his truck. For an hour, so so I've been doing. I've been working out with him in some form between boxing and a whole bunch of other things for probably 15 years. I do that two or three times a week. I run pretty regularly, so that's that's how that works. My whole family has kind of adopted uh, Johnny in the Wrecking Room truck. You can find him on on Instagram and, and and see what it's all about. But it's it's an amazing workout in a short concentrated period of time. I love that. Um, I, I, I I also I also ski a lot and play a lot of tennis in the summer. Where can our listeners learn more about Enlightened Hospitality Group or Union Square Hospitality? I think we both try to keep our websites pretty active, pretty pretty accurate, up to date, and topical. And you know, with 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 Danny Meyer as one of my partners, you can any given day you can find three or four things about Danny at the press. Fair enough. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Bye. Bye. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. Feel free to rate, review, and share the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to Wellness. If you'd like to sponsor us, please see the supporter link in our podcast bio. We hope everyone has a great rest of week filled with wellness, and we'll see you next time.